Hey, it's Phil Simon. My new book is out now. It is called The Nine, The Tectonic Forces Reshaping the Workplace. It's my best work to date, and I hope that you'll check it out. Thanks. Yes, Bodie. Oh, uh, he said he didn't feel like it. And I said, you better. And he said, or what? And I said, or else you're going to be in trouble. And he said, jam it. It's a wonderful story, Bodie. I've noticed you stopped stuttering. I've been giving myself shock treatments. Up the voltage. Conversations about collaboration, episode 77. I've got a special one for you today. Enjoy a 13-minute preview of my forthcoming book, The Nine, The Tectonic Forces Reshaping the Workplace. Props to my narrator, Jonathan Yen. Let's get it on. Racket Publishing presents The Nine, The Tectonic Forces Reshaping the Workplace, by Phil Simon. Read by Jonathan Yen. In gratitude to Dr. Uger Shaheen and Dr. Uslam Turechi. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Newton's Third Law Worlds are colliding. Jason Alexander as George Costanza, Seinfeld, The Pool Guy Introduction This is not a tactical book. Enlightenments, like accidents, happen only to prepared minds. Herb Simon Last year I had an epiphany. A common thread had undergirded my previous three texts. That is, I had unwittingly written a multi-book series about the exciting, challenging, and dramatically different future of work. Let me explain. Reimagining Collaboration hit the shelves in December 2020, at a high level, the book explored the power of internal collaboration hubs. Think of Zoom as Skype 2.0, if you like. Dismiss Microsoft Teams and Slack as souped-up versions of email. Many have, and I can't stop you from doing the same. But you're missing out on ways to dramatically improve how you collaborate with others. Project management in the hybrid workplace dropped 18 months later. Let's hope that its title is pretty self-explanatory. No one would ever call project management easy, but remote and hybrid work represent additional, formidable obstacles that inhibit employees, teams, departments, and even entire companies from getting things done. Arriving in November 2022, Low Code, No Code delved into the burgeoning citizen development movement. People who want to build valuable business apps no longer need to know how to code. The implications for IT departments, non-techies, and the future of work are profound. Each book examined a single topic. As such, each required a narrow and deep emphasis. This book takes a decidedly different tack. This next installment in my accidental series identifies nine separate but related forces that are reshaping the workplace. 
Setting Expectations Each of the following nine chapters covers one of these forces with a specific focus on how it affects the world of work. Chapter 10 brings it all home. No book of any reasonable length can tell you everything you need to know about automation, blockchain, generative artificial intelligence, AI, immersive technologies, and the rest of the topics in the upcoming pages. The Nine is no exception to this rule. Authors have penned lengthy texts on these evolving topics, with more undoubtedly on the way. Know this going in. We're about to cover a great deal of ground. Think wide, not deep. In these chapters, listeners will find what I believe to be the most valuable information on each force. I also describe many of their interrelationships and ways that they'll collide. At a high level, the Nine aspires to inform, provoke, and make you think. You may take issue with some of my analyses, recommendations, predictions, and conclusions. I'm entirely comfortable with that. Intelligent and reasonable people can disagree. Lastly, this book examines the future workplace through a strategic lens. You won't find step-by-step -step instructions for achieving specific tactical objectives— if you're looking for a bunch of listicles and prescriptions that purport to guarantee successful outcomes, don't buy this book. You'll be disappointed. Let's light this candle. Chapter 1. Employee Empowerment The relatively docile workforces of previous decades aren't returning. History never repeats itself, but it does often rhyme. Mark Twain On November 1, 2018, thousands of employees at one of the largest, most powerful corporations the world has ever seen walked off the job. Ring any bells? For several reasons, probably not. And why should it? First, my description of the work stoppage was intentionally coy and vague. Don't worry, we'll return to it shortly. Second, to put it mildly, the past five years have been a bit of a blur. The 24-7 media cycle makes it impossible to stay completely informed, at least if you want to maintain some semblance of sanity and actually do your job. Highlights and low points have abounded, although the latter seems to be winning the battle. Doom-scrolling all day long just isn't healthy. Third, labor management strife is old hat. Forget the halcyon days of U.S. unions of the 1930s. Between 1973 and 2021, the Economic Policy Institute found that the median number of workers involved in major work stoppages in the United States was 191,500. Figure 1.1, available to examine in the bonus material, provides an annual breakdown. It shows a high in 1974 of 1.796 million workers— and a low, in 2009, of 12,500. The issues among specific conflicts vary, but money is almost always a bone of contention. 
Inflation-adjusted middle-class wages in the U.S. have stagnated over the past four decades, and workers have become restive. More went on strike in 2021 than in any year since 2005. So, what was so important about that November day nearly five years ago? An Unprecedented Type of Employee Rebellion On several levels, this particular workplace protest was arguably unlike any other. For starters, it didn't resemble traditional blue-collar clashes popularized in movies such as Norma Ray, for which Sally Field won the 1980 Academy Award for Best Actress, Apples and Coconuts. The aggrieved employees weren't slogging long hours at the local textile mill for minimum wage six days per week, nor were they risking their lives each day, like the United Mine Workers of America in Pennsylvania, who struck and threatened to cut off the supply of fuel in the winter of 1902. Also, consider the mutiny's sheer scale— Organizers estimated that, in total, more than 20,000 full-time employees and contractors staged the international one-day walkout. As NPR reported, workers walked out of Google offices at 11.10 a.m. local time Thursday in Singapore, Zurich, London, Dublin, and New York City, filling nearby streets, sidewalks, and parks, And in California, home to Google's headquarters, employees streamed out of its offices into plazas. Yes, the cat's finally out of the bag. I'm talking about Google. Its workers organized in an organic, rapid, and decentralized manner. They eschewed formal meetings. Meticulous planning this was not. No union organizers took part. In their stead, people relied on digital communication tools to coordinate their worldwide walkout, some of which Google had developed itself for internal use. More than a little iconic. In other words, who needs arguably antiquated 20th-century constructs today when you've got a smartphone in your pocket? Whip it out and post to internal bulletin boards, Slack, Signal, Discord, and, of course, Twitter. Tweets like the one in figure 1.2 weren't uncommon on that fateful November day. Yana Dogan tweeted, Tomorrow I will be at the hashtag Google walkout and ask Andy Rubin to release his records and Google to hire an independent investigator. Dogan's tweet revealed the source of the workers' rage. By way of background, in 2014, the Internet giant parted ways with one of its top executives, Andy Rubin. Yes, the same Google gave the father of Android a mind-boggling $90 million severance package. On October 25, 2018, the New York Times published an incendiary behind-the-scenes expose detailing the previously clandestine circumstances behind his departure. From the piece, an employee had accused Mr. Rubin of sexual misconduct. The woman, with whom Mr. Rubin had been having an extramarital relationship, said he coerced her into performing oral sex in a hotel room in 2013, according to two company executives with knowledge of the episode. Google investigated and concluded her claim was credible. 
This story was the spark that lit the fire. Disgruntlement among the rank and file had been growing for years, especially in the wake of hashtag MeToo. Most relevant here, female workers had long objected to Google's treatment of women, handling of sexual assault cases, and requirement that all employees submit to forced arbitration as a condition of employment. As the Los Angeles Times reported, Google employees weren't lacking for demands. They included an end to forced arbitration for everyone, including temporary workers and contractors, the right to bring a co-worker into every HR meeting, a commitment to end pay and opportunity inequity, provide data on compensation gaps by race, gender, and ethnicity, and make that data accessible to all Google and Alphabet employees and contractors. Alphabet became Google's parent company in an October 2015 reorg. A publicly disclosed sexual harassment transparency report. It would include the number of harassment claims at Google over time and by business area, the types of claims submitted, how many victims and accused have left Google, and details of any exit packages granted to executives accused of harassment. A clear and globally inclusive process for full-timers and contractors to anonymously report sexual misconduct. Independence for HR to relieve the pressure to please senior management by downplaying claims. Think for a moment about what Google employees weren't demanding. They were more than satisfied with their compensation and benefits. The company had long offered its employees generous time off and workplace perks to die for. That body list included flexible work schedules, on-site medical assistance, free massages, dry cleaning, meals, snacks, and fitness facilities. And now, for the most remarkable part of the story. Google management publicly supported its employees' coordinated defiance. Yes, you heard that right. Countless CEOs watched the company's reaction in amazement. More than a few took to Twitter and LinkedIn to express their bewilderment. Why would a company's leaders tolerate, much less support or tacitly endorse, this degree of insubordination? Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However, if you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, and how can you not, please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time.